Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. A very good evening to you. Welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists. This week, BSE. Beef's back on the menu, British beef that is, internationally. But what was the source of the major problem that wiped out a lot of our beef stocks and destroyed our beef industry? Where did mad cow disease come from? What's the nature of it? And is it still a problem? In other words, is it still a problem for human health? We'll be finding out this evening because here to help us is Cambridge University's Professor Tony Minson. Hi, Tony. Hi, Chris. Thank you for coming in and, uh, and agreeing to talk to us about this. If you have any questions for Tony about the subject of BSE, the phone number to call is 08459 Lines, get busy, please call now. We'll also be talking about the cervical cancer vaccine because this is set to revolutionise healthcare because cervical cancer is the number one cause of death amongst women internationally. And someone who's here in the studio with us this evening who has been responsible uh, through her work for making that vaccine a possibility and now a reality is Professor Margaret Stanley, also from Cambridge University. Thank you for coming in, Margaret. Good evening. Hello, Chris. And Margaret's very happy to take your questions if you'd like to talk to her about this subject and how these vaccines work. Again, that phone number 08459 25 2000. And later on, we'll be catching up with the story of a parasite that makes mice mad and might also be linked to schizophrenia, of course, the disease of humans. That's coming up later. It's called Toxoplasma gondii. And we'll be finding out from Joanne Webster at Imperial College exactly how it works. Hello, my name's Chris Smith, and we're here for about an hour. And we're also taking any science question that you've got for us on anything. 08459 25 2000. You can email me chris at nakedscientist.com or text us on 07786 20 Helen. Hi, Chris. Thanks. We'll also obviously be giving you a rundown of the latest science news. And I believe Chris will be telling us about a brand new material to make sea walls from and why that's a good thing. How mobile phone masks might be very good at telling us if it's raining. And we'll also find out how in real life Flipper would have had his name of his own. And he probably wouldn't have been Flipper. And, of course, if you're in an experimental mood, there's always kitchen science. What you have to do is to boil your kettle this evening. It's very simple. You'll need some hot water, some cold water, two similar jugs to put the water in, and some food colouring. More details on that very, very shortly. And, and of course, we'll also be catching up with everything to do with the BSE story, cervical cancer, and toxoplasma. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Let's kick off, as we always do, with a look at some of the other major science news stories that are happening all around the world so far this week. One of them is a very interesting spin-off of mobile phone technology. It's a research paper that's published in the journal Science this week, and it's from Tel Aviv University, a researcher called Hajit Messer and his colleagues, and they've made a very interesting observation. It's well known that rainwater makes microwaves get soaked up. In other words, if you have a rainy day, then mobile phone transmitter masts have to increase their output power in order to still reach your handset because the rainwater soaks up and absorbs the microwaves. So what they've done is to monitor exactly how much microwave power these base stations are pumping out, and they've correlated that with how much rain is actually falling. And what they've been able to do is to make a mathematical formula that enables them to use the signals from mobile phone masts to work out exactly how much rain's coming down and how wet the atmosphere is. And this is giving us the first example of a very, very accurate and also nearly continuous record of rainfall. No one had thought you could do it before, and it may also be possible to extend this to also include things like pollution in the atmosphere, hail, sleet and fog. So for the first time, you really are going to get an amazing weather forecast on your mobile. 
And this week we've also got news of a study revealing that dolphins call each other by individual names, making them only the second animal on the planet after us humans that have individual labels for each other. Now, we already know that dolphins have a complex language of whistles and clicks to communicate with each other, but until now it's not been clear whether they can recognise each other because of the intricacies of a voice of a particular dolphin or because of the unique whistle or name that labels each individual. So it's like us humans, we have names for each other. So you know that I'm talking to you over the radio right now, not just because you can recognise my voice, but because I've told you that my name is Helen. And Helen Scales, Dr. Helen Scales from The Naked Scientist. So now researchers from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland have been working with do- dolphins in Florida. Not a bad job, so poor them. And they have uh, discovered that dolphins, like us, do indeed have names for each other. And the way they worked this out was they briefly captured wild dolphins and recorded their whistles and then synthesised that um, on a computer by measuring and mimicking the frequency of the sounds emitted by the dolphins and then producing a computerised dolphin voice. And when they played this computerised voice back to the dolphins, they responded in exactly the same way as they would have done if it had been a real dolphin making the noises. Can you give us an example of what the noises would sound like? Um, Do you know I really can't? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, but so basically this showed that uh, it is indeed this unique identity label or name that the dolphins use to recognise each other and not just um, learning what they each other sound like in the, sort of, in the voice of each other's uh, clicks and whistles. So yes, Are the names, names unique? In other words, um, yeah, is, is it, so. what, what happens if you have a situation where you have a dolphin called Helen and then another dolphin called Helen, or does that not happen? I don't think that happens. I, don't think, I, think, that, I think their names are possibly a little more complex than Flipper. <laughs> So I still don't understand why they don't get muddled up. Maybe they have different na- enough different names. It's complex. There's quite a lot of dolphins, aren't there? But they live in different pods. I mean, they don't all come across each other all the time in, in the wild, I should think. So maybe if you started messing around with different pods, they'd get confused. I don't know. We're sticking to the marine theme. There's a German manufacturing company called BASF, which most people will have heard about. And most people probably associate BASF with making media. In other words, things that you record music onto, like cassette tapes and more recently, more funky pieces of uh, electronic gadgetry. But they're also interested in how to protect the seaside, in other words, coastal defences. And they've come up with a very clever polymer mixture, and uh, it's two chemicals mixed together, isocyanate and polyol. When you mix these two things together, they form this trampoline-like structure, very springy, very absorbent, very good at absorbing shocks, but also riddled with holes, tiny pores. And what you can do with this stuff is to spray it onto sea walls and it essentially reflects the power of the sea battering into the seawall in the same way as a trampoline would bounce you on and off of its surface. And so this in, in, is a very good way to minimise and reduce the power of the ocean. And also, because it's got these holes in it, as the sea tries to power its way through the holes in the matrix of this material, it turns some of the seawater's energy into heat, and it wastes further energy that way, which really reduces the ability of the sea to erode the seawall. And you can spray this stuff on, and it goes hard, hardens in about 20 minutes so it's perfect for use between tides and they've actually employed this in a test on a place called the island appropriately enough the island of silt which is off the uh, coast of germany it used to be part of the german mainland but it's now being eroded away by the tide and uh, a quick test over the winter against um, some of the worst seas that uh, the North Sea can throw at it over winter has shown that it's performed admirably. And now they're hoping that uh, they'll find a market for this stuff because as global warming kicks in and sea level rises and we should see more storms and and more problems related to flooding, something like this could become even more pertinent in future. And there is another maritime spin-off, which is that the holes and the pores in the stuff are also an ideal home for wildlife and crabs and limpets and even marum grass is making its home there. 
and sticking again with creatures in the sea. I have a question for everyone in the studio. Who's been stung by a jellyfish? Anybody? I have, actually. Have you guys got um, pronged? Yes. No. No. But, Tony, you do a lot of sailing, so I'm very surprised that you've managed not to succumb yet. I try to stay in the boat. <laughs> Maybe that's why. No, so uh, we, few of us have, have experienced this, and it's not particularly nice. Um, but I suspect that most jellyfish victims don't realise that they've fallen prey to one of the fastest movements in the animal kingdom. Because this week we've heard news from a team of scientists from the University of Frankfurt in Germany, and they've used highly specialised electronic framing streak cameras to reveal how the stinging weapon of a jellyfish can discharge with the force of 5 million G-force. Which, Which jellyfish were they looking at? Well, OK. I was going to move on to this, but it's actually not a jellyfish they studied. They actually studied a hydra, which is a relative of a jellyfish, which is a tiny little polyp-like creature. It looks a bit like an anemone, which you would have seen on the beach, but very, very much smaller. And actually, those guys are... Um, they won't actually hurt humans. They're pretty harmless. Um, but the same mechanism that we're, I'm, about, I'm about to describe will also happen in jellyfish. So... Um, Basically, this, this unleashing of these stinging weapons is so fast that normal, conventional high-speed cameras really can't keep up. Um, but these guys have had this new technique of looking at it. Now, the surface of jellyfish and corals and hydra that I've just described are covered in thousands of tiny stinging structures called nematocysts. And these contain a cocktail of compounds, of toxic compounds, basically, which are designed to paralyse and kill their prey by attacking blood and nerves in their prey. And the stings are so powerful that they can pierce through the shells of crabs and lobsters. And now the research team have watched this process for the first time, revealing it to be an ingenious combination of a spring-loaded stab followed by a powerful injection like a syringe, which doesn't sound pretty nasty I have to say um, so the toxins are contained within tiny bubbles which are held shut with a lid made out of collagen which is that protein that we find in our skin and our teeth and our bones um, and these very fast cameras revealed that the sting as it touches the prey the collagen lid flips off and triggers a sharp dart that pierces the outer layer of the prey and that happens quicker than the speed of a you know, bullet from a gun, that kind of thing. That's the kind of speeds we're looking at. And then after the dart has basically speared into the prey, this salty solution of toxins is injected into the prey under huge osmotic pressure, which is basically the pressure that's generated when you've got a concentrated liquid trying to get into a less concentrated liquid. And that's, that can be a very powerful force. So this team has studied, as I said, this, um, this little hydra, which actually won't hurt humans, but it's exactly the same mechanism in those scary creatures that can be rather nasty and sometimes deadly, like the box jellyfish. But to know that such an incredible process is happening and uh, leaves us thinking, ow, a lot, is, is pretty amazing. As a sort of spin-off of that, is it true, because I've read that uh, certain animals can pick up those stinging cells, harvest them, if you like, from, say, a jellyfish, and then reincorporate them into their own body for use in their own defences. Is that true? I think that is true. I, I can't be sure exactly which creature that is, although one rather lovely thing that a crab does in, on a coral reef, it's called a boxer crab. And what it actually does, rather than actually incorporating the individual cells, it just picks up two anemones in its claws and uses them to attack <laughs> its prey. Sort of stings things with them. Yeah, just like a boxer with his, his clubs. It's lovely. Well, with our feet firmly back on dry land and emphasis on the word feet, just a very quick snippet here from uh, Microsoft, the computer company. turns out they're looking at their Microsoft Office package and seeing if there's any functions that they could take away from the keyboard and the mouse and transfer to foot pedals so that not only would you be controlling your computer with a keyboard and the mouse the traditional way, but you could also be controlling it with your feet. So that'll obviously come as welcome news to anyone who suffers from repetitive strain injury in their wrist but of course are we going to now start seeing people with repetitive ankle injury because they've been doing too much over enthusiastic word processing the naked scientists supported by the welcome trust
Time now to get your experimental uh, things in order, get your lab coat out, because Derek and Sheena are at Downham Market this week, and they are with Tom, and this is where you're going to need some hot water. Derek, tell us all about what we've got to do this week. Hello there, welcome to Downham Market High School, where we've come this week, and we've got a very, very easy experiment set up, ready for you to do at home, if you please. So please do listen out for the, uh, the details of that. With us is uh, Sheena, who's, um, who's got the experiment already and set up. So just briefly, what kind of things are we looking at today? Uh, we're just looking at um, food colouring and how it changes in hot and cold water. Okay, there we go. So it sounds very easy, and indeed it is. And also, we've got a volunteer who's going to be doing this for us. So uh, could you just tell us your name and what year you're in, please? I'm Tom, and I'm in year 10. Excellent, and of course we're here to kind of do a bit of science, so do you like science? Yeah, it's okay. It's oh, That doesn't sound enthusiastic enough for the naked scientist, so we're going to try and turn you on to science, is that cool? Yeah. Excellent, well here we go then, we've got a very, very simple experiment for you to do at home, and if you want to do it, these are the things that you will need. Firstly, you need two bowls, which are, say, able to hold a litre each or something, maybe bowls that are eight inches across and a couple of inches deep would be absolutely fine. You need a kettle, and you need to boil it too, and you need some food colouring as well, and that is it. And um, Sheena is going to tell us now what we do with all these things, so how does all of this work? So first we just need to fill one bowl with cold water, just ordinary tap water, and then the second bowl we're going to fill with our boiled hot water, um, so just carefully pour that in, and then we just need them to settle. So just put a cover on the hot water, carefully put a cover on, and we just need to settle, leave them to settle for five to ten minutes. Okay, now I suppose when you pour water into a bowl, it might look like it's still, you know, but I suppose you're saying actually it's still, there's still some kind of movement in there. Yeah, precisely. There'll probably be some movement for quite some time, but seeing as we've poured the water in exactly the same ways, it's, just, it's not too critical, but we still need to leave it to settle for probably just about five to ten minutes, and that should be fine. Excellent. So we just need the water to become nice and still within those bowls there. Five or ten minutes is great. And then, what do we do? Um, and then all we're going to do is, once we've left it and it's settled, we're going to carefully take off the cover off the hot bowl of water, and then we're just going to put in a tiny drop of food colouring into each of them and see the difference. Is there any extra advice on um, how to put that food colouring in as well? Um, we want to put the food colouring in quite a controlled way, and we don't want too much. So I would suggest taking maybe the handle of a teaspoon and just dropping it, just sort of dipping it into your food colouring bottle, and then just literally just touch the surface of each of your bowls of water, and that should just put enough food colouring in each of them. Yeah, exactly. So you're not really putting a teaspoonful in or anywhere near that amount, are you? No, just a tiny, tiny drop. OK, so that's fine. You've just got to get um, a bowl with some hot water in it, a bowl with some cold water in it, leave them to settle, and you can leave a cover on the top of the hot water one just to make sure it retains the heat, and then just drop a little drop of food colouring into each one in the middle of the bowl and see what happens. And, of course, Tom is here with us from Downer Market High School, ready to do the experiment, but I wonder, what do you think actually is going to happen? Have you any idea? No idea at all. OK, but we've got one that's hot, one that's cold. I mean, when you put um, food colouring in the water, I mean, what would you expect to see? Um, one, the food colouring's going to spread more than the other. All right, then. Well, we shall see about that. Anyway, you at home, of course, you may be wondering what happens. So if you'd like to find out, then please do do this experiment yourself. It's very, very easy. And if you can tell us the result, uh, the correct result, ring in and tell us the correct result, then you can win a prize from us, the Naked Scientists. So the number you need to call is 08459 252000. And you can also email chris at thenakedscientist.com. So please do get those bowls filled up with water and get the food colouring into them and see what happens. So anyway, we'll be back here at Downer Market High School later on in the show to find out exactly what happens and an explanation from Sheena. Until then, it's uh, back to the studio. 
Thanks, Derek. Chris and Helen here with you for about another 45 minutes, taking your science questions on anything you like, actually. And we're also going to have an emphasis this evening on the science of BSE. That's mad cow disease. What is it? Where did it come from? And where has it gone? That's with Professor Tony Minson from Cambridge University. We'll be finding out about the cervical cancer vaccine. Margaret Stanley, who helped to make that a reality, is here in the studio, and she'll be talking about that later. And toxoplasmosis, the parasite that makes mice mad and might also be linked to human schizophrenia. Got a couple of emails here. Brian Frobisher has uh, written in to say he listened to uh, the podcast from the other day and I asked somebody what the Morse code dot dot dash dash dot dot was and I said it was SOS. Um, unfortunately, that was wrong. Um, uh, Tony will know exactly what uh, SOS is in Morse code because he's, uh, he's an ocean goer. Um, in fact, I should have said dot 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 dash 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 dot dot dot. In fact, what I said was a question mark in Morse. Uh, thanks, Brian. And also Bill Miller sent me something uh, along the same lines. So I'm very sorry about that for misleading you what the International Morse for SOS. Well, sorry. I've got an email here from Jack who says he loves the show so much on the uh, podcast that he likes to listen to it at least two or three times. Nice one, Jack. Thanks for that. He says he's most interested in the information that we gave about self-modification bionics and the like, and uh, also how we use bacteria to help us. So that's great. Thanks for your email, Jack. Roger Evans has dropped me a line here. Uh, he's, he's in the States. He's a PhD student. Sorry, he's in, in Mexico. He's a PhD student and works in the government's centre of excellence using high power and sh- high power short, short pulse lasers to investigate laser matter interactions. He says, your show's very interesting and it's become one of my more enjoyable breaks from work. I don't own a TV, so I sit back and play your show whilst I'm cooking or just sipping some tea. I do have a couple of comments. Um, in a previous show, someone asked what was smaller, zero or negative infinity. I think the best way to answer this is to assume that by smaller they mean in magnitude. In that case, zero is the smallest since its magnitude is zero. You can just think of it as an arrow. Sure, it points to negative infinity, but that's a very big arrow. Consider if it were money, and I love this bit, and the size, consider it were money, and the size can be measured by the bank's interest in you. If you have or owe a very large amount of money, the bank will show a great interest in you, whereas if you have no money, you're not of much importance. So thanks very much for that, Roger. Excellent. I think it's now time for us to hop across the pond to our friends Chelsea Wald and Bob Hershon from Science Updates, who this week are going to be telling us about a brand new way that we could be losing weight very fast with lasers that could zap fat cells, and also a study of whether a cure for lung cancer could possibly encourage people to keep on smoking. Hi. This week we'll discuss a futuristic treatment for fat. But first, when you're playing Monopoly, getting a get-out-of-jail-free card makes landing in jail much less of a worry. And some scientists want to know whether there's a similar effect in real life. Exactly. If there were a cure for lung cancer, would you start smoking? A recent study by University of Florida marketing professor Joel Cohen and his colleagues offers some insight. They found that for people predisposed to risky behaviors like smoking and gambling, learning about potential remedies for the problem made them more likely to downplay the risk and indulge. But for people with no such vices, the information had the opposite effect. The availability of a remedy would only convince confirmed non-users that, boy, there are serious risks here, and it confirms the, the correctness, the soundness of their judgment to avoid the behavior. So ironically, marketing remedies can sometimes hurt the people who are the most in need of help. So it is with a little trepidation that we present to you the next story, one that suggests there may someday be a get-out-of-jail-free card for people putting on a few extra pounds. Yes, and this features the same dermatologist mentioned on Naked Scientist recently, Rox Anderson of Harvard Medical School, who found a new way to erase tattoos. Well, now he's saying that lasers can erase fat cells. 
Anderson noticed that certain wavelengths of light are absorbed by fat cells, but not by other cells of the body. So he worked with laser physicist Fred Dilla of the Department of Energy's Jefferson Lab in Virginia, who tuned a powerful laser to that wavelength. Anderson then used the laser to zap away fat, first in pieces of pork, and then, Dilla explains, in samples of human tissue. And that's the experiment he did down here using our free electron laser, and he found that he, in fact, could selectively kill and damage fat tissue below the skin, about a centimeter below uh, the skin, without affecting the skin. In the future, he says the technique could potentially clear up cellulite, melt down excess body fat, or even scour away unhealthy fat from arteries. Next week, we'll be talking about that most loved and reviled of all hormones, testosterone. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Very good, Bob. Back to you, naked scientists. <laughs> Thanks, guys. We look forward to hearing more from Chelsea and Bob next week. But remember, if you want to find out more from the Science Update crew, go to their website at www, as they would say in America, www.scienceupdate.com. The Naked Sciences, Chris and Helen, and we're joined in the studio this evening by Professor Tony Minson and Professor Margaret Stanley. And uh, coming up shortly, we'll be finding out about mad cow disease, BSE, and also the cervical cancer vaccine. And if you have any questions for them on that, please send them in now. It's uh, 08459 25 2000, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. And if you have any text questions, 07786 20 1960s, our phone number. We've had a uh, phone call from Alan, who's listening in Kent, and he wants to know, do TV re and radio signals travel vertically? And if they do, do they disappear or travel off into space forever? And does that mean that the signal from the 1950s is still in space somewhere? You're absolutely right, Alan. They're, the signals that we create are, are generating a sort of bubble around the Earth, which is expanding at the speed of light, and that means that the bubble is roughly 100 light years across now, spreading away from the Earth. But when you think that the Milky Way is about 100,000 light years across, easily. It's going to take a long while for many of the stars just in our own galaxy, let alone the fact that there are something like 7 followed by 22, 10 followed by 22 zeros, numbers of stars out there elsewhere in space. It's going to take a long while before our messages go anywhere else, and that's why it's not really surprising that we haven't really heard any radio transmissions from anyone else yet. I've also had an email from Ari Lakeman, I hope I've said your name right, Ari, who's in Northern Ireland. He listens to us on our podcast, and he says, um, speaking of radios, I was listening to mine one night, and I noticed that when I turned on my desk, light, there was a little blip of noise on the radio. I repeated this and noticed that when I was on the border of completing the circuit, in other words, the bulb was flickering, I got severe interference on my radio. This phenomenon would have made sense to me if it weren't for the fact that the radio wasn't drawing on the mains, it was running on batteries. I then thought that perhaps the light photons might have been interfering with the radio waves destructively. I'd be rather intrigued to understand why this happens. And I've also had an email from Tommy Lee, who's in China, and he says, I've been listening to uh, your show for a while, I think it's fabulous, I'm just wondering how radio waves are produced produced and received. So it seems like a good opportunity to, to just talk about that briefly. Uh, what's happening here, Ari, with your radio is when your light switch uh, is just on the border of completing a circuit, what you're doing is creating a switch which is almost closed and at some point the switch will create a spark. And when you create a spark, you'll get a little surge of current in the wire and then the spark will, break, will finish and break the circuit and then the circuit will be re-established with the next spark and another surge of current will occur in the wire. So your light bulb is flickering because the current is changing in the wire very, very rapidly. Now, whenever you have a changing current, 
that produces a changing magnetic field. And whenever you have a changing magnetic field, you induce some electrical current. And so when we create a radio wave, what you've got is a transmitter which is applying a changing electric field to a piece of metal, the aerial, and the changing current going up and down in that, in that piece of metal then induces around the metal a changing magnetic field, and the changing magnetic field then creates in space-time, the fabric of space around it, a change in electrical current, and that electrical current in space-time creates a little wiggle of magnetic field, and so you get this wave that propagates as an alternating magnetic field and electrical field, and it propagates through space at roughly the speed of light. That's a radio wave. So why did yours interfere with your radio? Well, the reason is, when you're just on the verge of completing the circuit with your light, it's creating enormous amounts of changing current in the wire, creating lots and lots of funny frequencies of radio waves at a, at a fairly low power. These then come out of the, around the wire, spread out into the room, and are picked up by the aerial of your radio, and they interfere destructively. In other words, they cancel out the radio waves of the radio station you were listening to, and that's why you get that interference. Now, I believe we have someone on the phone. Is uh, Les from Over has a question for us. Hi, Les. Hello. Um, noticed that the other week, uh, mammals do not mammals that I know of do not use the colour blue or green. You know, allegedly the blue whale that looks more grey to me than the blue, and uh, just about everything else does. Any particular reason apart from why animals have their colour? Yeah, they just don't use mammals. Don't use blue green colour. Uh, never know. Yeah, I, I tweaked it a few weeks ago. Well, the thing is that animals are the colour they are in order to blend in with their environment because the key thing the key thing that drives survival, Les, is not being preyed upon or eaten because if you're not eaten, then you get to have babies and you pass your genes on to the next generation and if your genes say, I'm a polar bear, make me white so I match the snow, you're less likely to be caught by a hunter or shot and eaten. So you're more likely to have more babies and those babies are going to have babies. So animals will change their colour to be the same as the surroundings so they blend in and that makes either their hunter easier so they can catch things to eat or they don't get eaten by other things now it might be that the colors that you're you're referring to have not been adopted because they're not very good colors in nature uh, a snake for example is a greeny brown color because a grass snake because it wants to blend into the background other animals use the converse they don't want to blend in they want to mark themselves out as i'm highly toxic and if you come near me i'll sting you to death such as a big hornet or a black widow spider or something so that's why they use color and the other reason they use color and i think helen can outline with fish they're very vibrantly colored aren't they is, is part of the mating game yes i think that's it sort of recognizing the species um showing off to your mate that you're the best fish in the in the ocean or i think actually i would say that there might be oh, don't baboons have blue noses i think and that's part of being a they big, also have sexy, big red bottoms don't and they? big red bottoms and i think yeah. I, like, I think um i can think it's slightly different but there is a mammal that is green um for a slightly different reason and that's a three-toed sloth do you know why they're green because they move so slowly through the Green forest. And yes, that's it. And they're actually blending in because they actually have um, uh, moss growing on their fur that makes them. I think green. they move so slowly. <laughs> yes. Well, it doesn't make no sense to you. You've got so much green in the Amazon and so much green in the wet European forests and the Canadian forests and things like that. It just seems logical they'd be green to me. You know. It's a good point, Les. Do you want to have a quick go at the quiz? Yeah, I'll have a go. Onions were one of the first vegetables ever to be cultivated. Do you think that's fact or fiction? Mm. No, I think it's fiction. Wheat and grasses and
I'm afraid it's true, actually. Apparently it was the Egyptians' favourite vegetable alongside... They had bread, onions and beer as their main diet and that they were cultivated onions up until 3,500 BC. Next question. There's scientists have created a computer that has feelings. Is that science fact or science fiction? Well, it's heard about it on, I've heard it about it on robots, so I'll go with yes. I'm <laughs> <laughs> afraid not, sorry. Not very well. <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing well here, Les. Keep it up. Yeah. Keep it up. Next question. The average person spends two weeks of their life just kissing. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Uh, well, I think it's probably fiction, that one. It's a Going massive for the zero out of three. <laughs> but, Leslie, what's reassuring, right? You're still in the lead at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you very much for your call. Yeah, OK, come on. See you later. The Naked Scientists, Chris and Helen, and don't forget, um, we're talking very shortly about BSE, cervical cancer and toxoplasma. If you have any questions about those, 08459 25 2000, send me an email, chris at nakedscientist.com or text on 07786 201960. Our kitchen science experiment this evening, you have to get two jugs which are identical. You put hot water in one of them, cold water in the other one, and you put a blob of food dye into both, and you see what happens. It's as simple as that. And then call in with your answer. We have a fabulous book called Living Science from Oxford University Press to give away if you're first on the phone with the correct solution. I'll give you an update on how people are doing with that in just two ticks. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. Quick update on how people are doing on this. We've heard from Daniel Judd, who's in Sittingbourne. He's 10 years old. He says that uh, he's found some very interesting results. And I can tell you, Daniel, uh, looking at your results, you're on the right lines. Well done. And we've also heard from Mary Rose. She's in Kettering. And she's also got her kitchen science correct. But uh, she's not 100% why sure why it happened, though. So if you have uh, an experimental sort of bent this evening and you want to have a go at this, very simple. Hot water in one jug, cold water in the other jug, a bit of food colouring in both and tell us what happens. And if you can come up with an explanation and you can beat Daniel with a correct explanation, then uh, your name will go in the Hatter's tonight's winner. Right, now, we are discussing the science of BSE, or mad cow disease, this evening, and, and uh, someone who's here to help us do that is uh, Professor Tony Minson. Good evening, Tony. Evening, Chris. Thanks for coming <coughs> in. Can you just tell us a bit about what, what actually is BSE? What is the disease? It's a, well, the disease is a, it's a, a disease that causes paralysis, uh, coma, and then death. It's a central nervous system disease. It's, uh, it's a, one of a group of diseases of this kind, but BSE is special because it appeared suddenly out of the blue in cows in uh, the late 80s and uh, from almost nowhere. It got to about 40,000 cases a year uh, by around 1990. And then, of course, what was really horrible is that it... Uh, it Proved that it proved to be transmissible to people, but extremely inefficiently. So it turns out that there have been about a hundred cases all told in the last ten years in people, but there have been hundreds of thousands of cases in cattle. If you sort of zoom in with a very powerful microscope on the brains of cows that have been affected and people, what is the nature of the infectious agent? Well, it's really unusual, and it's taken, and this is really uh, uh, the last 15 years uh, of research has, has shown us this entirely new kind of uh, entirely new kind of disease. It's not caused by a bacteria or a virus, the kind of things we're used to thinking about as causing disease. It seems to be caused by uh, a protein, a host protein, that is one of our proteins, um, folding abnormally extremely rarely folding abnormally and then forming aggregates of that, of that, of that folded pro, abnormally folded protein. And it's strange, it seems as if this abnormally folded protein 
almost like a crystal attracting more molecules to it and growing, can actually uh, take some of the abnormal protein, will take the normal protein and just recruit it into the crystal, making more and more abnormal protein. So it's an abnormal protein, and if you look at it with a really powerful microscope, what you see is sort of rod-like aggregates of this material, and, and they're the things that are called prions. So you hear the term prion diseases, and prion diseases are, are this group of diseases caused by abnormal proteins. Not just BSE, though. There's a whole clutch of these that, yeah. that occur naturally in people and animals and, and in different forms in people. Yeah. Uh, in the, there are many different diseases of this kind. I mean, in sheep, it's called scrapie. There's a whole there's a, a range of diseases in sheep called scrapie. In man, we've known for many years about a disease called ordinary CJD, which occurs spontaneously in every population in the world. About one person in a million every year gets... CJD, a where, where this uh, formation of the abnormal protein just occurs spontaneously. Where it gets risky is where you start recycling back into the same species. That is uh, one of the famous uh, examples of that was Kuru in the uh, highlands of New Guinea where a particular isolated area, they practiced cannibalism uh, when, as part of a funeral rite. So when people died, they used to take, uh, they used to actually take some of the brain material and eat it as part of the funeral rites. What so how, that means, when they were doing that, Tony, how was the protein that, that was in the brain tissue getting into the person's brain? How was, well, when you eat a bit of the brain, it goes into your, you, you eat it, it goes into your stomach, and then it passes across the stomach wall into the lymph system, um, and then it was, it's thought that in the, in the lymphoid tissue, in the spleen, and in the lymph nodes, it expands, it begins to recruit more of the same protein, and then it appears to go along the nervous system to the brain, all the time recruiting more protein, converting more of the normal protein into the abnormal protein, like a chain reaction. And so the dangerous thing is obviously cannibalism is bad news and recycling food back into the same species is bad news. Is it just unlucky that it happened here in Britain? I think that's probably right. I think we were just extremely unlucky because uh, virtually every Western, every Western country was certainly taking the remains of uh, beef carcasses, the offal, the, the, the remaining bones, and then uh, rendering that down and converting it into a high-protein supplement for it to feed back to more cows. So I think it could have happened anywhere, but, and I think we were just unlucky it happened here. I think that's probably uh, right. So if anything, British beef is now safer than it's ever been, and perhaps we should be suspicious of beef from other countries. Well, I wouldn't like to say anything about other countries because we all get, end up getting sued, but uh, I think you're right. I mean, we now uh, take extraordinary precautions. First of all, we don't recycle any bovine material back into bovines. We don't make meat and bone meal anymore. Um, secondly, uh, we don't eat any animal. Uh, we, don't, we don't eat any animal that was born after or before 1996 when we stopped recycling food completely back into bovines. Um, and thirdly, uh, all, thirdly we, re we, we remove all the dangerous tissue, the brain and the lymphoid tissue, from the carcass before it's uh, butchered. And then finally, animals are actually tested for the presence of prions uh, when they go to the abattoir. So, I mean, it's an extraordinary, range of, um, an extraordinary range of tests that are done. And then finally, of course, uh, because, of the, uh, because we 
no longer recycle bovine material back into cows, the number of BSE cases in this country is now is now reducing. It's a thousandfold lower than it was ten years ago. Mike's in Malden. Hi, Mike. Hello there. Thank you for joining us. What would you like to ask Tony? Um, well, a couple of things. First one is, have we got a time bomb in the population with mad cow disease? I don't think so, Mike. I mean, the number of the number of cases, uh, the number of cases in in uh, of of this new form of CJD, that is mad cow disease, if you like, in people, uh, rose to a peak of about twenty eight. There were twenty eight cases in the year two thousand. Uh, last year there were five. It looks very much as if, uh, as if far from being a time bomb, the numbers are dropping, and the disease is under control. That's, I think, what I, I would, I would say. So it was a bit of a sort of panic at the time that it was going to be a, like a twenty-year incubation period, and things like that. That's right. The worry at the time. I mean, that's exactly right. When the first cases appeared in nineteen end of ninety-five, beginning of ninety-six, um, nobody knew what the incubation period was. Now we knew that the maximum exposure of people to contaminated beef was around 1990 and so people said some people said well if there's a 20-year incubation period then these first few cases in 96 might expand to to hundreds of thousands of cases in 20 years time and nobody could say that was nobody could be sure that that wasn't right and so and so i think in 1996 we were really in some uh, we, we were really in some trouble i mean it turned out that the incubation period looks like it's about 10 years that bse transmits extremely inefficiently to people uh, and probably the sort of uh, 20 the, the maximum of 28 cases in 2000 was uh, was 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 the maximum and now it's it's going down and uh, it's going steadily down Mike, would you like to have a quick go at the quiz? Uh, yeah, OK, yeah. Here we go, then. The average adult produces half a litre of flatulent gas a day. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? It's probably true. Yes, sadly it is. Apparently it's about 14 times a day. Same for men and women. Maybe slightly more for vegetarians, but I wouldn't like to... Definitely more for vegetarians. <laughs> I know a few. Right, OK, next question. A day will always last the same length of time, whichever planet you're on, Mike. Science fact or science Fiction. Fiction. That's right, yes, a day is the length of the time a planet takes to rotate on its own axis. And this varies depending entirely on the mass and the size of the planet and what gravitational forces it is under. And uh, when Alexander the Great died, his body was coated in honey to stop it from decomposing. Is that fact or fiction? Um, You should have gone with your gut instinct. It is true. Honey never goes off. In fact, it's the only food that will ever spoil. It will never spoil. And, yes, that's what Alexander the Great was covered in. Lucky man. Thank you for joining us, Mike. Thank you. It's Chris and Helen as the Naked Scientists, and we're talking this evening about the science of BSE, the science of cervical cancer and the vaccine against cervical cancer that's coming up shortly. And up next, we're going to be joining Joanne Webster from Imperial College to talk about toxoplasma, a parasite that makes mice go mad. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work? Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. We've heard from Stephen Bamford. Uh, He's on the right lines with his uh, 
with his kitchen science experiment. Well done to you and Jocelyn. Uh, I think you're up there in Norfolk, in somewhere near Cromer, aren't you? Also, Rena Wilson has got in touch. She says she doesn't have any food colouring to do the experiment with, but uh, she's speculating an answer, and I think you're on the right line. So well done. Very simple. Two jugs, hot water in one, cold water in the other, blob of food colouring. What happens to it? Ring in 08459 25 2000 and tell us what, we, what you think is going to be the answer. We have a fabulous book to give away for the person who is correct. Now, Joanne Webster is, in, is from Imperial College. Hello, Joanne. Hello. Your research looks at um, the parasite Toxoplasma gondii, which most people probably have never heard of. But what actually is it? Um, it's a protozoan. People kind of think of protozoan, things like malaria. It's a parasite, a very, very common parasite uh, that... Humans usually just have heard about it when they're pregnant. It's a, it's a parasite that we're told to avoid cleaning out the cat litter, etc., for to avoid catching toxoplasmosis. But tell us about its life cycle. What does it do? It's an indirectly transmitted parasite. It means it's got two stages of its life cycle. We've got the cat as the final host for the parasite, and then it will have an intermediate host, such as a rat or a mouse. And what the parasite wants to do is to make sure it's transmitted from this, this rat or mouse into the cat. And that's what it does, is it changes the behaviour um, of its intermediate host to enhance this transmission rate so it can complete its life cycle. How does it change its behaviour that, like that? How does it manipulate the behaviour of the, of the mouse or the rat? Well, the parasite lives, or it, it's, it prefers to, um, to exist within the brain of its host. And that puts it in a very privileged position in which to achieve uh, manipulation. And what it does, it seems to specifically alter those behaviours, which is more likely to make it predated by the cat final host. So cats are immediately attracted, for example, to fast-moving objects. So the, so the parasite increases the activity of rats and mice. It also makes them sort of less fearful. And one of the interesting things is it not only overrides this fear of cats, this innate fear of cats within rats and mice, it actually seems to make them attracted to them. So it manipulates the behaviour so an infected one will actually approach areas with signs of cat presence. And, and is there anything specific about the cat they don't like? Normally, normally I mean. Normally it seems to be, yes, the odour. The odour within cat urine seems to have a very specific response, uh, evoke a very specific physiological response in uh, rats and mice. And this is why... Uh, many scientists use this response when they're developing anxiolytic anxiety releasing, reducing drugs and it, the parasite seems to be uh, interfering with that response. So how is it doing that and, and the outcome is of course what? How it's doing that and the mechanisms is very much a black box at the moment. It's not, nothing so sort of crude as just by having lots of these cysts within the brain. What it seems to be is it seems to be interacting with the dopamine, the, the, the neurotransmitters, particularly dopamine within the brains of these rodents is, is one possibility. And of course the implications are that is this is a very, very common parasite. It's about 35% of us in Britain are infected. And the parasite can infect any, it infects all warm-blooded animals. So the implications are that, that we'll be seeing these behavioural changes, albeit subtle, in the intermediate host, the rats and the mice, 
the implications may be that we may see similar, albeit subtle, behavioural changes with other infected hosts, such as, indeed, humans. And, and we can get this parasite because it's set up this tissue uh, cystic form in the muscle of all other animals that are infected. So if we eat a piece of meat that's not cooked properly, it can get into us. Absolutely. That seems to be the most common way that people are getting infected nowadays. Traditionally, it would be coming from, shed from the cat, the oocyst stage with the cat feces, hence avoiding the cat. But indeed, the most common way we are getting it is through undercooked meat. And the population of France who thrive on cooking their meat at room temperature, what, how many of them are infected? Yes, it goes up to, uh, in particularly part, parts of France, about 84%. Um, there has been a study finding in Paris of 92%, but it's certainly a lot higher than in Britain, for example. And, and if there are people picking up this parasite, um, is there any evidence that it might be uh, leading to behavioural changes or even mental illness? Certainly, there is a number of studies by a group in the Czech Republic, and they're doing the same sort of studies that we do in, in the rats to see if, these, if humans are becoming slightly sort of increased activity, decreased reaction times, very similar behaviour profiles as in the uh, rodents, and indeed they are finding it. And in terms of more clinical implications, there was a study uh, finding that, for example, you are 2.5 more, uh, times more likely to be involved in a road accident. What particularly interested uh, me lately is the fact that because we've got this parasite within the brain, and if it is indeed altering uh, neurotransmitter levels, that may have the implication that in a very, very few people, obviously not everybody's infected, it may have more severe repercussions. And indeed, uh, a convincing body of evidence is gathering, it's all very controversial, but that some cases of mental illness, and particularly schizophrenia, may be associated with an infectious origin, and toxoplasma seems a prime candidate for this. Thanks, Joanne, for joining us and telling us about your research. Okay, you're welcome. And uh, one of the other points that Joanne did make to me on the telephone uh, when we spoke yesterday is that the drugs that can be used to treat diseases like schizophrenia do seem to be toxic to this particular parasite, which suggests that, in fact, it may have a role to play in diseases like schizophrenia. It's the Naked Scientist, Chris and Helen, and if you want to ask us any questions about science, about the science of BSE, cervical cancer, which we're coming to next, or even toxoplasma, 08459 25 2000 is our phone number, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. Now, Margaret Stanley is someone from the Department of Pathology at Cambridge University, and she's spent a lot of her life working on human papillomaviruses, the viruses that cause warts and verrucas, but they also cause cervical cancer. Thanks for joining us, Margaret. Um, tell us about your research. Well, um, my research has always been asking, how does this virus um, change cells? And more importantly, how can we intervene early in the virus infection to prevent either infection or to prevent the consequences of it. How does a virus trigger cancer? Because for many people, that will be a pretty unusual thing to have said. It's rare. I mean, viruses exist to make more viruses. But as part of their life cycle, they turn cells on to divide and make DNA. And if there is an accident during the virus's replication, actually, when the virus is making its own DNA, and the virus proteins are expressed at the wrong time or in the wrong amounts, then they can change the behavior of the cell. And that's basically how this virus causes cancer. It's a rare accident. And how was it first picked up that this was linked to cervical cancer? Well, that all starts in the 1970s, and everybody's heard of the pap smear. Well, there was a smart uh, cytologist in Canada who realized that some of the cells you saw in pap smears were the same sorts of cells you saw in warts. 
And we'd always assume from the epidemiology of cervix cancer that it was a disease which had an infectious basis. And so uh, as soon as this was found cytologically, in other words, down the microscope, then there was a big effort to try and find out if these viruses were involved. And the next big step was the, that a German scientist actually isolated virus DNA from a cervix cancer, and identified what it was, and it turned out to be a papillomavirus. But was, was there some anecdotal evidence that nuns were very, very rare amongst the bunch of people who well, got cervical cancer and Jews and Muslims were, were, were also very, very rarely implicated? Well, in, in essence, you're right. I mean, there's, I often think it's an apocryphal story about 15,000 Belgian nuns who were surveyed. Only one of these ladies had cervix cancer and her behaviour before taking the veil was, um, was <laughs> rather extreme. So it's a bit of that. That one's a weak link to the nuns. But how did you go about making a vaccine to stop this virus? Well, uh, again, that was tricky. What you need to do is you need to present the body with the protein that the body first sees uh, with the natural virus infection. In other words, the protein against which you make antibodies. And so. Uh, this is actually very difficult with papillomaviruses for all sorts of technical reasons. But basically, molecular biology, recombinant DNA technology came to the rescue. And you isolate the gene that makes the protein of the virus coat. The virus is like an egg. It's got a coat and it's got an interior. So you isolate the gene that makes the protein of the coat. And then you express this gene in something like a yeast that grows extraordinarily quickly and every time the yeast grows it makes it expresses a gene and makes the protein so you make huge amounts of the virus protein and when you make the protein that way the protein forms its natural shape in other words it forms what we call the native shape it looks like a ball of wool instead of a set of railway lines and it's the ball of wool that you need for an immune response to be made and and at what age is this effective? When would you need to challenge someone with this vaccine to guarantee they're going to be protected? When you immunise somebody with a pro prophylactic or a preventive vaccine, you must give it before they're infected. Now, this is a virus you acquire as a consequence of sexual activity. And I have to say, everybody gets this. I mean, this is not a rare virus infection. The only other thing I, I know you get as much with as sex is pregnancy. So this is very, very common. So obviously you've got to immunise people before they start having sex. There's another... Re the, the best age at which to immunise is in childhood. And the reason for that is children make much better antibody responses than adults. I have bad news for your listeners. As soon as you hit puberty, the immune system goes downhill. And that's why you immunise children. So the optimal age is probably 9, 10. Now, we asked you this evening to have a go at our kitchen science experiment. You had to get a hot water pot and a cold water pot and put some food colouring in each and watch what happens. And someone who did that is Grant. He's in Ipswich. Hello, Grant. Hello. What did you find? Um, well, I found the cold water particles uh, move the food colouring around, but this also happens in hot water, but a lot quicker. Ah, so the hot one mixed the colouring much more quickly. Yeah. Any, any ideas as to why? Um, well, the energy from the hot water, um, it sort of 
speeds up the particles, so the food colouring diffuses quicker. It's a good theory. Shall we find out if you're right? Hang on there, and we'll have a chat to Derek and see if you've got it right. Derek, has he got it right? Come back to us. Hello there. Welcome back to Downham Market High School, and uh, we've been just waiting here to do this experiment with the hot and cold bowls of water. So uh, Tom is here from Downham Market High School, and uh, he's ready to do it, and Sheena, of course, has set up the experiment too. So, Sheena, would you care to firstly instruct Tom over what to do right now? Okay, so Tom, if you just take the bottle of food colouring and then just dip in the, the other end of the, of the teaspoon, yep, the handle end, and just dip it in, and then just dip it into your bowl of cold water, and then just repeat for the hot water. Okay, and tell us what you see. Um, it's moving a lot quicker in the hot water than the cold water. Okay, and in what way is it moving in the hot water one when we look at that? It's spreading far and then dropping down to the bottom, where in the cold water it's not spreading quite as far, and then it's dropping down to the bottom. Yeah, sure. And I, I suppose we've got kind of a really definite shape in the cold water one, haven't we? We've kind of got this strange structure of, uh, of, of food dye that's just kind of suspended in the water and it just doesn't really seem to be moving anywhere, does it? No, it's diffusing more in the hot water. And we've been waiting here for, I don't know, about a minute and then now, looking at the hot water one, what does that look like? It's all red. Well, a light pink. Yeah, so it's just spread out already. Yeah. So there you go. So I think we've seen the effect. So, I mean, what do you think is going on there? Like, wh why do you think we've seen this differing effect between the hot and the cold? Um, I think it could be because of the heat in the hot water. It's making the particles more energised, meaning the food colouring can diffuse easier through it. That sounds reasonable to me, doesn't it? What, what do you say, Sheena? What, what is going on here? Yeah, I think that sounds like a perfectly good explanation. Um, I think there's actually two things that might be happening here. Uh, first of all, what I thought would be the obvious thing that would be happening is that because the hot water is, all the molecules in the hot water will be moving much more fast. They've got much more kinetic energy. That's when we, when we talk of heat, what we're really talking about is sort of kinetic energy and all these molecules are moving very, very fast and that's what we, that's what we perceive as being hot. Okay, and so if we were to look at, you know, with, with an amazingly massive microscope and look down at these particles, which I suppose we could never do, but they, what, they'd just be moving around a lot. Yeah, they'd be moving around like crazy in there. Yeah, definitely. And so then, yes, what, what have we seen? So, so that's, that's originally what I thought was, was completely causing the food colouring to be sort of bashed around in there. It's sort of, sort of brownian motion. They're all being sort of hit by the, by the hot molecules around them. And in the cold water, you'd still have these, these molecules moving, but they won't be moving so fast and without so much energy. However, I think there might be another explanation, which is actually the one which is, is what we're seeing so quickly here, and that's convection currents. For convection, the, the hot water at the top of the surface, where it's next to the cold air, will, will evaporate and it will cool down. And then it will no longer be the hottest water in the bowl. So hot water from below will rise to take its place because hot liquids rise. And so then you set up these currents where the hot water from below sort of keeps rising to the top and then the cold water gets pushed down. So all these currents then cause a very, the mixture to sort of mix up very quickly. Okay, then. So a convection current, is that something that just happens continuously in, in a, a, a vessel which has got some warm water in it? Yeah, as long as the vessel is at a different temperature to the surrounding air, then it will continue to sort of evaporate and you'll get this cooling effect at the surface. So, yeah, I mean, you've talked about two different effects. I mean, I suppose it's quite possible that they're both happening here, would you say? Yeah, definitely. I think they're both happening to some extent. Um, it's hard for us to really conclude which is, which is the dominant one. Absolutely, but that's fair enough, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not as if in the natural world that we always see one effect or the other. There's often a mixture of things going on, and that's what we've seen here today. So, so there you go. Tom, your, your kind of guess about diffusion, I suppose that was, that was to do with one of those, the first one that, that um, Sheena explained. But do you understand the whole thing a bit more now? Yeah, it's clear. Yeah, well, <laughs> it ain't clear. That's the thing. It's nice and coloured now, so that's great. So there you go. All right, well, thank you very much, Tom. Did you like the experiment? Yeah, it was quite fun. 
All right. Well, thank you very much indeed for doing the experiment with us and um, to Sheena as well for setting it up. And uh, we will be back next week with some more science from somewhere in the east of England that you can do. Until then, it's goodbye. Thanks very much, Derek. And uh, in fact, next week, Anna will be at in, out in Ely finding out about the science of music and harmonics. So that's another fun experiment for you to take part in next week. Grant, well done. You got it right. Spot on, and your explanation was good too. So we're going to give you the prize this week. You're a proud owner of a copy of Living Science from Oxford University Press. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking part. Thank you. Good night. Okay, good night. And uh, also on our competition, Science Fact or Science Fiction, Mike got the highest score this evening, so he's a winner too, and we'll dig around in our goodie bag, Mike, and find something for you. Uh, one of our guests this evening is Margaret Stanley. She's telling us about her, her cervical cancer vaccine. Margaret, where is it in clinical trials at the moment? It's actually into humans now, isn't it? Yes, it's in the large trials called Phase 3 trials, and at the moment we've got five-year data on about 8,000 women, and I can tell you it's 100% effective in the women who've been vaccinated. Uh, and so internationally, what are the implications? It's, this is the biggest killer of women from cancer in the third world. This is their only hope, a vaccine that prevents infection. And I guess, I mean, sensitive subjects as it is, but this probably couldn't have been developed without the use of an animal research model. Absolutely. This has depended on, on rabbits and dogs, because rabbits and dogs were the animals with natural warts, and we showed the virus worked there before we went to people. So you can actually cure rabbits and dogs from their own infections if they have it? You can indeed. OK, well, thank you very much, both of you, for joining us. Tony Minson from Cambridge University for joining us and talking about BSE. Thank you, Tony, for like making it so clear. Thank you, Margaret Stanley. And uh, also thank you very much to Joanne Webster, who came in earlier to talk about her work on toxoplasmosis and its possible link to schizophrenia. Now, next week, I shall be off in America. I shall be visiting all of you, those of you listening to us stateside in your home territory, but I'll be leaving you in the hands of Kat and Mandy, and uh, they'll be joined by Jez Wells and Hugh Hunt to talk about the science of sound and music. But if you have any science questions for us in the meantime, and you'd like us to include them in next week's show, just send them over, chris at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, have a wonderful Sunday evening. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com.